love for you to take your Bible out, turn to Isaiah chapter 53, one of the three weeks that we will be in this section of Scripture. Obviously, Daniel last week launched us into this incredible chapter. And if you did not bring a Bible with you, there's Bibles uh, underneath the seats in front of you and around you, and you can take one of those out and follow along there as well if you don't have access to a Bible. So, a few weeks ago, went to Israel. One of the parts of that that I was really looking forward to was the Qumran area uh, where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? And in 1947, if you don't know the story, there was a Bedouin tribe boy that was looking around for a stray goat of all things, and it wasn't the greatest of all time goat, but it ended up being the, one of the greatest of all time finds. And there was these steep cliffs in the area, and we have a picture that I took while I was there of those cliffs, and uh, that was taken just a few weeks ago. And if you notice on there, there is a cave. There's quite a few caves, but actually down towards the center bottom of the picture, there is a specific cave, and he was looking around, and he I don't know that you do this to find a goat, but apparently you throw rocks to find your goat. And he threw a rock into that cave, and as he did, he heard the sound of breaking pottery. It intrigued him. He had to make actually quite an effort to get up into that area. And when he did, he found on the floor of the cave an amazing sight, very, very large jars containing leather scrolls wrapped in a linen cloth. And, and because some of those jars were tightly sealed, he couldn't open all of them. But when they were open, they discovered the scrolls and they were preserved in excellent condition. And he took the scrolls to a, a Muslim Sikh in nearby Bethlehem. And the Sikh couldn't read them because they were obviously in Hebrew. And so he sent them to a Syrian monk who He knew, and eventually the largest of the scrolls was kind of figured out, and it was Isaiah. It was Isaiah, and it was sold to a Muslim antique dealer. And this Isaiah scroll, which is pictured right here, was sold for about 20 pounds. So uh, the dealer didn't believe that they were legit. And so he settled on a sum, which at that point was 30 bucks. Well, eventually they came into the hands of someone who understood the significance of them a little bit more, and because of a war that was going on in that region, they came across to the United States, and of course you would figure out that they would come to New Jersey. Is there anyone from New Jersey here? All right, there you go, all right. That ruins my next joke. But who would think New Jersey, right? The Dead Sea Scrolls are sitting in New Jersey. Now, even more than that, and I don't care if anyone is a subscriber to the Wall Street Journal, uh, they were, in 1954, put on sale through a want ad. There it is. The four Dead Sea Scrolls available to those that would like them. A want ad. Now... I sit here today and go, man, that would have been so cool. 
Could you imagine? Could you imagine that? You're sitting there like, oh, yeah, maybe I'd take, up, take that up. Well, uh, the price was a little heftier by then. So this is 1954. It was sold for $250,000 and brought back to Israel. Now, the Isaiah scroll that we're talking about here from the Qumran community is probably the most significant of all the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was dated originally about 125 BC, and we should know the significance of the letters BC, right? Before Christ. So before Christ, a quarter and a century before Jesus was born, the predictions that are found here in Isaiah 53 were already well written. Now, this is the most complete ancient version of Isaiah that we have, but then they dated it even more, and it actually puts it back more to 230 BC, so almost two and a half centuries before Christ, this prophecy was written in a complete form once again. Now, we also know in the book of Isaiah that this is actually 700 years before Christ when these were written, long before that. It's amazing. It's incredible. But the real miracle in all of this has nothing to do with the Dead Sea, nothing to do with the Dead Sea Scrolls, nothing to do with just that one script of Isaiah. The real miracle in all of this, although all of that seems pretty miraculous to find something like that, that'd be pretty cool. The real miracle that we're discussing today is how in the world the salvation for sinners like you and me come from a holy God. And that's what Isaiah is talking about. That's the real marvel in all of this. Now, it's great to have this scroll because it shares with us that the whole book of Isaiah was seen as the whole book of Isaiah way before any modern scholars got a hold of the fact of, oh, maybe it's like four different authors and all the different types of junk that's out there today. That was not seen that way. This is the whole book, the whole thing that was discovered. And in there lies this incredible section of Scripture. How can, as Isaiah say, says, a three times holy God because what does he say? Holy, holy, holy. The one whose eyes are too pure to, to look on evil, he cannot tolerate wrong. It says in John chapter 1, God is light and in him there's what? No darkness at all. This God who gave the law at Sinai and upholds it with all of his heart, how can a God like that accept wicked sinners like me, like you? If, if they just simply believe in the gospel, if people just simply believe in the gospel, the gospel that Isaiah was preaching, that we're preaching today, if you simply believe in that, you are justified. How can a person like you, sorry, but a person like me as well, how can we be justified and made right in the sight of a holy, holy, holy God? Romans 4, 5, however, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies who? The wicked. 
His faith is credited him as righteousness. Now, that's, that's a huge phrase. It's a scandal, actually. The wicked are righteous. The wicked are righteous. It is God who justifies. God who declares for all time, you are not guilty. Romans 5, 6, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for who? The ungodly, the wicked. It's absolutely astounding. It's a scandal. The normal way that people think or understand about God is this, if they even believe in God. God punishes bad people and rewards good people. That's what most people would say, right? That's what he does. But what does the gospel say? Nope. God declares wicked people innocent. God treats the wicked, the ungodly, as though they were righteous. More than that, in the fuller teaching of Scripture... God actually adopts the wicked as sons and daughters, takes them to live with him forever in a holy dwelling place in heaven where we are with him and we cry three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's a stunner. It doesn't work in any sort of human math. But if it wasn't the case, every last one of us are toast. We are. We would all sink under the fiery wrath of God's justice, and we would, all of us would, be condemned eternally. Isaiah 53 is the clearest chapter of all of the Bible on the central mechanism of how this works. How many of you like old clocks? A few of you? I find them absolutely fascinating. Get rid of the digital clock. Because, you know, when you, when you look at it, there's just nothing to it to kind of let you know how it operates. But you take that old clock specifically like an old grandfather clock or an old pocket watch, and you open the back, what, is, what do you see? You see the movement. You see everything behind the scenes that makes the front thing tick. Isaiah 53 is just that. It is opening up the back of the way that we get to heaven and explaining this is how the clockmaker God did this. That's the picture in all of this. So picture, we get to go to heaven. That is great. When all time is expired and we get to go to heaven as Christians, awesome. Let's open up the back of the story and see how that works. 
See how that happens. See how the master craftsman made this happen. And it's called two words here, substitutionary atonement. You can write that down, substitutionary atonement. It's the idea that our sin, our guilt, our wickedness can be transferred from us to a substitute. And Christ's suffering and Christ's death can completely atone for it all. All of our law-breaking, the eternal gospel, the timeless message of salvation through a substitute sent by God was proclaimed with crystal clarity an amazing seven centuries before Jesus was born. In that chapter, second week we're looking at it today, lies the substitutionary atonement measure. If you jump down to Isaiah 53.11, it does say, By his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many. My servant will justify the many. Justification is what happens. The work of the servant of God here, Jesus, his work is justification. This is what's happening behind the scenes here. What does that mean? It's a declaration by God, the judge, that we are innocent, that we are not guilty, that we're righteous in his sight. So let's dive in. We only have a few verses we're looking at here, starting in verse 4 of chapter 53. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for all for our peace fell upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. It is the heart of the message here in Isaiah 53. It presents the heart of the gospel message. The innocent servant dying as a sacrifice for sin. The message was at the heart of the whole system of the clockwork of salvation. The innocent animal sacrifice dying for the guilty sinner that we see in Leviticus chapter 16. Jesus carries our infirmities and sorrows. <coughs> Jesus bore our sins on the cross. But it also says here that he identified with the consequences of Adam's sin. Right? One, he felt them, but two, what did he do? He ministered to those. He ministered to those who were needy, that needed healing. And so Isaiah 53, 4 actually applies to our Lord's healing ministry. We see that in Matthew chapter 8. When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began waiting on him. Wouldn't that be cool to watch something like that happen? 
Now when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill in, here we go, this is the important part, in verse 17, in order to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Every blessing we have in the Christian life comes because of the cross, amen? Verse 4, actually, though, does not teach healing in the atonement, a physical healing in the atonement, that every believer has the right to be physically healed. The prophecy, actually, was fulfilled during Jesus' life. It wasn't fulfilled at his death. He carried for us. He knew. He understood. He saw. He knew our pain. He knew our suffering, and in his time with us, he did heal. But that's not the emphasis of what's going on here, and some people make that the emphasis. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis in verses 4 through 6 is on the plural pronouns that we see there. You know what this is about? Our griefs, our sorrows, our iniquities, our transgressions. We have gone astray. We have turned to our own way. He didn't die because of anything he had done, but because of what we have done. And in this, it clearly explains the cross and the process of his death. He was wounded, pierced through. His hands and feet were pierced by nails as it was also explained to us in Psalm 22 and Luke 24, it was told that that's what happened. His side was pierced by a spear. In John 19, 31 through 37, that is explained. It is prophesied in Zechariah 12, 10. It's told once again in Revelation 1, 7. He was crucified, which was not a Jewish form of execution, as we see in John 12, verses 32 through 33, capital punishment to the Jewish people was stoning, and that is not what happened to him. And what happened to him was humiliating for a Jewish person. Because if you really wanted to humiliate a person, go over to Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, you know what was humiliating they publicly exposed the corpse, naked. A practice that Peter related to the crucifixion in Acts chapter 5, in Acts chapter 10, and in 1 Peter 2. Jesus bore all of that for us. He was bruised, crushed, as it says there, under the weight of a burden. And what was that burden? The iniquity, the sin of us all. Sin is a burden, isn't it? How many times have you gotten into a situation where you had done something that was wrong to another person and over time it doesn't fade away? the burden of that sin does what? It grows more and more and more and more. That's what sin 
Sin's a cancer. Sin destroys. And in some way, when you look at the back of the clock of salvation, Jesus, he took on all sin for all time. None of us can fathom the weight of all sin of all time. I can't fathom the weight of my own sin. He was crushed. He was chastised, given many stripes, yet the punishment brought what instead of terrible things that brought peace, that brought healing. You know, the only way a lawbreaker can be at peace with the law is to do what? Suffer the punishment that the law demands. That's the only way. You got to pay for it, right? That's how it works. And what's interesting is once we see, once again, we see here, Jesus keeps the law perfectly, but he suffered the whipping, the pain that belonged to us. And because he took our place, we now have peace. We have peace with God. And we will not be condemned by God's law. The healing, once again then, in Isaiah 53, refers to the forgiveness of sins, not the healing of the body. Sin is not only like a burden, but it's also a sickness. And Jesus is the great physician, and he is the only one that can cure that. Sin is serious. Every day, we watch in our culture the results of sin, don't we? And it's awful. It is absolutely awful what we see in our world. It is awful what we see in government. People sinning, trying to lead in sin. And what happens? It gets messed up. And it's awful. And what does it do? It destroys the culture. It destroys what's going on. I will be the first one to say, when you drive around the streets of Los Angeles and you see all of the homeless stuff that's out there, and anyone that says that it's not gotten any worse and we just see it more that's that's baloney it's it's awful but what is what is that from it's from the collective sin of people leading against god's will and living against god's will and it is the it is what happens it's the ugliness of the cancer of sin. And it's not just the people out there. It's us. It's us too. Sin's serious. The the prophet Isaiah calls it transgression. It means rebellion against God, daring to cross the line that God has drawn. How many times have you crossed the line that God has drawn? drawn. 
Probably many. He calls it the iniquity, the crookedness, the crookedness of our sinful nature. Now, in all of this, this means two things. We are sinners by choice and by nature. All of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. When sin entered into the human world through Adam and Eve, guess what? We are all sinners. But guess what? We still choose to sin. Anyone that sits there and says, well, you know, I had no choice. Another time I will say my favorite word this morning, that's baloney. We're born with a nature that prompts us to go astray, that prompts us to go against God's word. It means that by choice we go astray. And like sheep, we head off into the wilderness. Isaiah 53, 6 is one of the most convicting indictments of mankind. All of us. So who does that include? All. <laughs> All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned to their own way. Jerry Bridges said it like this. Going our own way is the very essence, the very core of sin. And he says even more, and this is interesting because once again, remember, there's some people that say, well, if you do good, God will reward you, but if you do bad, you go to hell. And in those statements, there's no mention of Christ in either one of those statements. And Jerry Bridges actually catches that in this, and he says, your way may be to give money to your favorite charity." Another person's way may be to rob a bank, but neither, neither is done with reference to God. Both of you have gone your own way. You can give money to your favorite charity, and it means nothing to your relationship with God. See it? And that's what people go, whoa, 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 time out. That's not fair. Look at the back of the clock of salvation. It runs in a different manner. We are born children of wrath. Ephesians 2, 3 says that. By choice, we become children of disobedience. Ephesians Chapter 2, verse 2 says that under the law of Moses, the sheep died for the shepherd, but under grace, the good shepherd dies for the sheep. And that's what verse 7 continues with. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, that the transgression of my people striking was due to him. 
So his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Let's look at a few things here. We don't live in a servant-master type of world, although some would argue that's most employment. But a servant is not permitted to talk back to the master, to the owner. He or she must submit to the will of the master or mistress. Jesus was what? He was silent. Because he was the suffering servant. Jesus was silent before those who accused him as well as those who afflicted him. He was silent before Caiaphas in Matthew 26, the chief priests and elders in Matthew 27, and Pilate in Matthew 27 and John 19, and Herod, with Herod, Antipas in Luke 23. He did not speak when the soldiers mocked him and beat him in 1 Peter 2. And that is actually what impressed the Ethiopian treasurer as he read this passage in Isaiah in Acts chapter 8. Isaiah 53, 7 here speaks of his silence under suffering and then verse 8 of his silence when illegally tried and condemned to death. Once again, everyone, this is 700 years before it happened. In today's courts, you may know this very well, I'm a person that likes to follow law type of stuff before answering the call into ministry. That was the plan for me. I was convinced that I was going to be a lawyer. So I still enjoy dabbling in reading and that type of stuff. And in today's courts, a person can be found guilty of incredibly terrible crimes, yes, but that person can also be proved if they can prove something in the trial was done wrong, that the case has to be tried again. Everything about Jesus' trial was wrong. It was illegal. But what did Jesus not do? He did not appeal for another trial. John 18, he says, The cup with which my Father has given me Shall I not drink it? And so he was silent even in the fact that legally he could have said, foul. The servant here is also compared to a lamb, which is one of the frequent symbols of the Savior in Scripture. A lamb died for each Jewish household at Passover. The servant died for his people the nation of Israel. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world on, even, so it expands it. 28 times in the book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb. And since Jesus was crucified, as it says here, with criminals, as a criminal, it's logical that his dead body would be left unburied but God had other plans. 
The burial of Jesus Christ is as much part of the gospel as his death. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that. The burial is proof of what? That he actually died. The Roman authorities would not have released the body to Joseph and Nicodemus if the victim was not dead. And Joseph was a wealthy man. Do you catch that in verse 9? Yet he was with a rich man in his death. Isn't that incredible? I mean, that should just, you should just go, that's, that's astounding. A wealthy man like Joseph would never carve out a tomb for himself and put a criminal in it. He prepared it for Jesus with the spices and grave clothes ready for the burial because he knew something happened that was special. And the applications of all of this are many. And I've said it multiple times this morning, but first of all, we need to marvel that such a holy God could work a salvation for sinners such as us. We need to marvel at that. I'm sorry, Marvel comics have nothing over marveling over what Christ has done. The, the law causes us to understand the, the sin that we have is crushing. And it brings us to the cross where we are lifted out of the mud and the muck and the mire of sin and we are given a perfect righteousness and we are given a perfect glory that is not ours. It's Jesus. And we are given His glory for all time. And if you are a Christian in here this morning, Remember once again, you are completely, totally forgiven of all sins. You are completely and totally forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future, based on what we studied today, based on Christ's substitutionary atonement death for you. And you know what you need to do? You need to rejoice, as Paul says. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You need to rejoice. You need to jump into the deep end of the pool of grace and swim in joy. Here's another sentence for you. Be happier than you are right now. Exactly. And even those of you who are happy, be happier. Rejoice. This conquers, the substitutionary atonement conquers anything and everything you are facing in life. It's bigger and better than anything you are facing in life. I did my taxes yesterday. Was I rejoicing? No. But I can read this 
and go, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And yes, I will give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but he can't take away my life. He can try. But that's Jesus. He's my life. Believe in the substitute that was given for you. Trust in His atonement. It is true. It is our only hope. Because if you are feeling the weight of your guilt right now in life, you need to understand that Christ has paid that penalty if you just believe in Him. Do you know yourself to be a sinner condemned by the law? Do you know that God in the law has made a way for our sins to be forgiven by substitutionary atonement? Do you know that? Well, guess what? Thank goodness it's not just by animals. That was all a symbol of what was to come. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. But the blood of Jesus does once and for all. Do you see Jesus in your mind's eye? Can you see him there dead on the cross though he was perfectly sinless? We need to ponder that at times and meditate on that and cast all of our guilt and sin on him by faith because that's what he took for us. He was treated as wicked so that we would be treated as innocent. Now, of course, all of this is being said to those who are believers in Christ. And it's a gospel that has never changed and will never change for eternity. Whether you've been a Christian for five years, 50 years, or five minutes, you are saved. But to those who may be here today that are not Christians, and I firmly believe this with all of my heart, if you're not a Christian, you know it. You know it. Because you don't believe in Christ and what he's done in his work on the cross. You know it. But you also know this. Many people come to church that aren't Christians for one reason and one reason only. They feel lost, which is what this scripture talks about. We were all lost. We've all gone astray. And the shepherd goes out and he finds us. Repent and trust in Christ. Trust in Christ crucified. Trust in Christ resurrected. And 
can I just urge you, read this chapter again. Read it line by line like you're taking in food. If you're accepting him as Lord and, scripture, uh, Lord and Savior. Scripture is, is food for life. We need to feed on this word. You can choose just one verse, for example. Choose verse 5. Go over the multiple clauses there in verse 5. He was pierced through for what? Our transgressions. He was crucified for what? Our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Feed on it. And if your faith is feeling a little anemic right now, it's probably because you are not in His Word. Go with Isaiah 53, read it again, and just thank Jesus. Like this, I thank you, Lord. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for your cross. Thank you that I have life. Thank you, and you can go on and on and on through Isaiah 53 with that. You also need to do something. Repent of your proneness to wander. Own it. Repent of it. We need to be sane in life. Lord, I am prone to wander. I am prone to go astray. And I don't want to wander. Would you please heal me? Acknowledge that we are wretched. Rescue me from this, this body of death. Fight the sin that's in me. I don't want to wander. I want to be holy. I want to repent of the sin. I want to be with you and cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We need to be meditating on the specific words of this prophecy. Do you meditate on the words he was pierced and what that means? That rich, the word rich, the grave, the sprinkle, the words don't go away. And because of that, you can spend time in them and realize the depth of the inner workings of the clock of salvation that has been built by God for us. And then you know what you need to do? You need to share this news with someone else. This unbelievably awesome chapter. You need to share the news in this chapter with a non-Christian person. Hey, Bob, we sit here and we, we play golf all the time. And, you know, between hole three and four, we talk about all that's wrong with the world. And between four and five, we give up figuring out how to do anything about it. Well, before we get to the back nine, I want to share with you today, there's actually a way that this is all gone in a second in your life. All of this has been dealt with once and for all. And his name's Jesus. Oh, Scott, I don't want to talk about Jesus. Just hang with me. Let me share with you something that was written 700 years before Jesus was born. 
a matter of fact, we know for a fact, as we started this message today, if someone says, oh, we don't know that, oh, yeah, we do. Matter of fact, we don't even have to worry about the 700 years. We can go back 230 years to a scroll that was found in 1947 that says these exact words from Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 9, 230 years before Jesus was born. And you tell me that this wasn't Jesus. Now well, it'd be pretty tough. And then let's figure out then what he did for you, what he did for me. What he did for us is exactly what we sang this morning. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And that means we need to praise the Lord. Because it's stronger than darkness. His mercy is new every morn. Yes, our sins are many, but His mercy is more. Actually, I think we need to sing that again. Let's stand right now. I'm going to have the band come up. We're going to sing that song because that's what Isaiah 53 is talking about. Amen? Let's stand together. As soon as the song's done, we're done. We're going to praise the Lord. We're going to sing together. And then after we're done singing here, hang out and get to know people. Got a lot of new people here. Thank you for being here. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. He's taken away our sins.